Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. Last month, we covered the latest diagnostic and treatment tools for patients in every stage of heart failure with cardiologist Dr. Cynthia Koss. This month, we talked to pulmonologist Dr. Marcella Frank about sleep apnea, diagnosing it, and how to treat it so that you can stop losing sleep over it. Here's Rasa Kay. I'm Rasa Kay, and I'm talking with pulmonologist Dr. Marcella Frank. The epidemic of poor sleep certainly predated COVID, and if you feel like you're sleepwalking through your days, you should probably be checked for sleep apnea. More on that from Dr. Frank. Well, the general term sleep apnea means that you're not breathing at night when you're sleeping. And complete cessation of airflow is called apnea, but under the umbrella of sleep apnea includes shallow breathing episodes, which can be just as disruptive to sleep and health, as well as persistently low oxygen levels, which can come from what we call hypoventilation. That's just general shallow breathing. So all of these get lumped under the category of sleep apnea because they are of equal consequence to health and to functional ability. Whatever these breathing interruptions that may not even wake people up is what you're saying. They do prevent them from getting deep, refreshing sleep. So the symptoms of sleep apnea would be? So the typical symptoms of sleep apnea include snoring, if someone is available to hear the snoring, because individuals, of course, don't know that they snore in general, gasping for air, which somebody may witness or the individual may wake up with a gasping sensation, Sleepiness during the day, which comes from compromised sleep quality because the brain is trying to wake people up to get them to breathe normally. And the problem is that some people are not sleepy during the day, and that is because the brain is ignoring the breathing disturbances and letting the oxygen levels go even lower without alerting the individual to wake up and to start breathing. And so you really have a double-edged sword. If you have sleepiness, it's possible that the brain is very sharp and noticing even small pauses in breathing, whereas severe breathing disturbances can go completely unknown by the individual. What are the causes of sleep apnea, the risk factors, the prevalence of it? So apnea means that the airflow is blocked and it's typically coming from a blockage in the back of the throat. And that can be a structural issue, including a large tongue. It can be a narrow jaw, narrow hard palate, large uvula, big tonsils, shallow throat in the back. So anything that makes the space smaller is going to compromise the airflow moving through easily. This is more a blockage issue, though, than a narrowing of the airways. It can be either. But generally, the brain is compensating for whatever is usual for most people, although not always. So children can have sleep apnea, and that's often coming from structural abnormalities in the bony head, particularly Down's kids have similar problems, or large tonsils, which are very common in children, but can persist into adulthood. So consequently, it's a blockage, and the blockage can be narrowing or it can be complete occlusion. So risk factors? I mean, if you weren't born with these structural issues, how does it develop in an adult? So for many people, it's related to weight. When you gain weight, the weight is deposited all over your body, and that includes the neck. And the fat is deposited behind the tonsils, so it pushes the tonsils toward the center of the throat. So even if the tonsils are not large, the tonsils become part of the obstruction. 
If you lose weight, that fat tends to drop away from all areas of your body and the tonsils go back into where they belong and the throat opens up. The other concern about weight loss is the abdominal weight pushes up on the big breathing muscle in the middle of the body called the diaphragm. And in REM sleep, which is the dream stage of sleep, the diaphragm is the only breathing muscle that we have. All the other muscles are shut down because of the natural paralysis that occurs to voluntary muscles in REM sleep. So if you have a large abdomen, the excess fat in the abdomen is pushing up on the diaphragm and limiting the diaphragm's ability to take deep breaths. And that's what I was referring to about shallow breathing. So it may not just be a blockage in the back of the throat. It may be a compromise to the ability to take normal size breaths and maintain oxygen levels. The REM sleep issue, the importance of REM sleep. Explain that a little more. There's much we do not understand about REM sleep. We know it's important. We know that it is a stage of sleep that is preserved throughout life, even into being older, as well as children. We now know that there are many things that REM serves to function as, such as memory, learning. We know that insufficient sleep, and to a certain extent that includes REM sleep, can lead to plaques in the brain that are responsible for Alzheimer's disease. So there appears to be an increased risk of dementia in people that have chronic sleep deprivation, and often that's coming from sleep apnea. Is that something that persists then even if you've gone without treatment for a while? Without treatment for sleep apnea? Yeah. I mean, you get the plaques, or is that something that... Nobody knows that. Yeah. We know that there's a system in the brain that cleans out the debris, and that precedes the plaques. And we know that that debris is cleaned out during REM sleep and other deep stages of sleep. So anything that prevents that is going to limit that cleansing system in the brain. Nobody has been able to look at this prospectively day by day, week by week, because you need to actually be looking at the brain in order to know whether that's happening. So to a large extent, it's studies that look ahead and say, we see where things are now, where were they in the past? So if somebody's had insufficient sleep, working night work, for example, for many, many years, you know, that's something that you can look back historically, but you can't really tell night to night whether the, whether the makeup sleep has actually resolved any of the issues day to day. What's the most common type of sleep apnea? Obstructive sleep apnea is the most common type because it is associated with snoring, and snoring is often recognized by bed partners or other members of the household before central apnea would be recognized. Central apnea is when the brain pauses and doesn't send a message to breathe. And that is a less common type of apnea, although it does tend to occur in people who have narcotic medications in their system, who have had a stroke, who have had brain injuries because it alters the brain's ability to send the proper messages. But obstructive sleep apnea is the most common. But what you're saying is that you can have a form of sleep apnea even if you're not snoring your head off. That's exactly right. And those folks go unrecognized unless something happens. For example, uh, when they have anesthesia or in the hospital, somebody may notice the pauses or somebody may have an oxygen meter on the finger called an oximeter under certain circumstances and see that they drop. So those people really do tend to go unnoticed. You know, a lot of people got those pulse oximeters during the pandemic. That would be kind of an interesting experiment. Or is that something that you could see on some of these watches and monitors that, gosh, there's 
there's a health monitor, a wearable for just about everything now. So the new wearables, some of the new wearables actually do record oxygen saturation levels throughout the night, which is the similar thing that we do with home testing and with overnight oximetry that we can send the unit home to people. Now some of these wearables actually can record it. So I do see people coming in because they see that the wearable is showing low oxygen levels during the night. And that's a good enough metric for you? I mean, they're accurate enough or they're, or it's, are you dealing with people that are, you know, consulting Dr. Google and coming in with a whole lot of symptoms? Uh, both of the above. It's a really good metric if somebody notices it to say, let's do a test and let's see whether this is real and what's causing it. Because certainly if you, if you kink your finger or if your hands are cold, your circulation is going to be diminished and that can cause false decreases in oxygen levels. But it's certainly a nice screening metric that people now have the advantage to have that says talk to your doctor about this and see whether this is something that should be checked. Napping, would that help? Is that some way that, that you can let your brain remove the debris, the plaques, or, or, or is that not the kind of sleep we're talking about? That question has several aspects to it. When people have apnea, it's there anytime they sleep. So consequently, whether you're napping or whether you're sleeping at night, the breathing disturbances are still going to be there. So if your sleep is compromised from sleep apnea, the nap may not be all that helpful until you get the sleep apnea resolved. On the other hand, people who have sleep deprivation, taking a nap if it's good quality sleep can make a big difference. And there are people that have what's called polyphasic sleep. So they sleep in two blocks of time. So instead of the typical seven and a half to eight hours that people typically need, they may have two blocks of four hours. So we tend to not go into REM sleep until we've been asleep about 90 minutes. So a 20 minute nap wouldn't be enough to get you into REM sleep. A 90 minute nap too late in the day is going to impair your ability to sleep at night. So, so it really is a double-edged sword. I think appropriate napping at appropriate times can make a big difference in terms of the ability to learn and function, particularly driving. Typically for people that need naps, the morning tends to be a better time because it's further away from bedtime, but most people tend to get tired in the afternoon, and that's a natural dip in alertness between two and four in the afternoon. So a well-placed nap of appropriate duration can make a difference in terms of functional ability for the rest of the day. Whether it actually clears the debris out from the brain, nobody knows. Right. Best sleeping environment? Most people sleep better in a cool, quiet, dark environment. Now that doesn't mean cold, that doesn't mean shivering, but it means if the room is too hot, people tend to not sleep as well. The weighted blanket phenomenon. Boy, some people think that's the greatest thing in the world. And I mean, personally, I'm, I'm kind of a thrasher. <laughs> I think that would be the most disruptive thing to sleep with. What, what's your thinking on that? My philosophy about everything is, if it works and doesn't hurt you or anybody else, it's a good idea. So the weighted blanket may stop you from thrashing <laughs> because it may limit your movements and maybe you'll sleep sounder if you're not thrashing. If the thrashing is coming from something else like breathing disturbances, then you kind of want the thrash so that it's waking you up a little bit and getting you to breathe. So there's no absolute black and white answer for most things. When we've talked about, you know, symptoms of sleep apnea, the snoring, the gasping, and now you're saying it like thrashing, like kicking the blanket off? or. Sure. The brain's job is to keep you safe, whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. So it's monitoring many things, even during sleep. People think the brain's not doing anything, but it, it's actually very active. It's very metabolically active also. 
So the brain is monitoring oxygen levels in the bloodstream. It's monitoring acid balance in the esophagus for people that have reflux. It's monitoring airway resistance for people that have nasal congestion. So when it senses that something's not right, it's going to try to wake you up or get you to change position so that you can correct whatever the problem is. And hence the thrashing can reflect fragmented sleep from something. Now, restless legs is a, an annoying sensation people have in the legs that they're aware of during the day, but the sensation can continue during the night, and that can also cause thrashing and leg movements and leg jerks. So you talked about the people who sleep in phases, the four hours at mm -hmm. a time, and you know there were people famously, I mean, Martha Stewart likes to say that she only needs four hours of sleep, or are these people really sleeping in phases and they just don't go back, or...? What, so, how much sleep do we really need? So the average person needs seven and a half to eight hours of sleep, but some people only need about five hours if it's good quality sleep. Some people need nine or 10 hours, even if it's good quality sleep. The technical term that we use, there are 85 different sleep disorders, probably even more because they get added every day, but it's called long sleeper versus short sleeper. And so for some people, the brain is able to restore what it needs to restore in less hours, whereas some people, it takes more. So if you are unfortunate enough to need nine or 10 hours of sleep and you're getting five or six, you're suffering from chronic sleep deprivation for what you need. Sleep aids, is that good quality sleep? Most over-the-counter sleep aids will help people be sleepy. Most of them will not alter the stage of sleep. Some prescription medications can increase good stages of sleep, but they can also increase the average stages of sleep. So, so slim sleep is better than no sleep. Good sleep is better than bad sleep. <laughs> and if you need a sleep aid to help you sleep, then it probably makes sense to talk to a sleep specialist or use a sleep aid that's been recommended by a professional. Do sleep aids complicate sleep apnea? Prescription sleep aids can suppress the ventilatory drive in the brain that gives messages to take breaths and can also worsen the airway obstruction in the back of the throat. So we try to be extremely cautious with prescription sleep aids so that it does not worsen sleep apnea, whereas the over-the-counter aids do not do that. The, the safety impacts of sleep apnea. Certainly mass transit has taken big steps on screening for it among, gosh, the term is sleep at the switch. How long has that been in part of our lexicon? And yet it became very important in recent years. People who do not get adequate sleep, either in terms of quality or quantity, tend to not have normal cognitive functioning. Now, many people who are sleepy can maintain their level of alertness if they're properly stimulated. In other words, it's less likely to fall asleep during a conversation than it is on a boring long drive. So consequently, much of the mass transit doesn't always involve activity every minute. So they are at risk of being bored or not stimulated and falling asleep if they're not getting good quality or quantity sleep. The FAA has specific criteria for their pilots. Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration monitors commercial drivers throughout the country, and they have specific criteria for the CDL drivers. 
So if you have sleep apnea, you need to be reporting whether the sleep apnea is adequately controlled. This is one of the safety measures that they have. So sleep apnea does not limit the ability to work in commercial transportation, but it does require that you treat the underlying problem so that you are safe at performing your job and maintaining public safety. But even as a private citizen getting behind the wheel, if you're not aware of that brain fatigue, sleep apnea has some significant potential impacts there as well. There are many people who have died in motor vehicle accidents from falling asleep. And we all think we're invincible. We all think that we can do it, that we can do everything. So recognizing the limitations that you have is extremely important. Every patient that I see, if they report sleepiness, I always ask them, how do you manage it? Because people think that opening the window or turning the radio on is going to solve it, and that does not solve it because it's a continuous stimulus that your brain just ignores if it wants to sleep. So it's extremely important to not drive if you're sleepy. We are hoping that screening is done at various levels. For example, patients who are admitted to the hospital, anesthesia can worsen sleep apnea because it blunts the brain's ability to notice that you are not breathing properly. And the breathing pauses tend to be longer, and in some cases, people end up having complications after surgery. So we are hoping and trying for screening to be done in hospitals before surgery and before anesthesia so that these folks are not at increased risk afterward or so that they are monitored more carefully in case the airway blocks. That's pulmonologist Dr. Marcella Frank. We'll discuss diagnosing sleep apnea and how to treat it in our next podcast, which, as always, drops on the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at DemandDeborah.org.